at Luke chapter 15 and uh, cover an entire chapter. And haven't seen it, don't have access, there's a link to the sermon outline in the chat window of Zoom. Just click on the, the button that says chat at the bottom of the screen so you can see that and click that link uh, to, uh, to go over to see the outline. Where we are here in Luke, as we, uh, as we pick up in chapter 15, Luke is still answering the question from chapter 13, verse 23, uh, the question of, will those who are saved be few? And this raises a natural question, especially coming out of Jesus's parables and teaching in chapter 14. The natural question is, what about me? What about me? Will I get in? Am I fit for this kingdom? And these questions had much weight for the Jewish leaders of Jesus's day who, who couldn't believe that Jesus wasn't spending his time with them. They were the honored. They were the elites. They were the respectable, the academically responsible, the, the self-made men of their day. Some people get way too hung up on the the question of fitness. Who is fit for the kingdom? They stress out over it by gazing deep within and looking for something they can be sure of. Some people get too hung up with it. But there are other people who are not nearly as hung up with the question as they ought to be. Those concerned with their own fitness ought to be more concerned with others' fitness. And those concerned with others' fitness for the kingdom often ought to be more concerned with their own and wondering whether they themselves are really fit for the kingdom. Jesus helps us to see these things with greater clarity here in chapter 15 by by telling three of the most vivid stories that have ever been told. And so I would like to deal with the question of, fitness. The the first thing we'll talk about is the question of fitness and how the question of fitness is really a question about joy, the joy of God's kingdom. And then we'll see Jesus's answer in the three parables that he tells in this chapter. Let me pray for us and for our, our time together. Father in heaven, please help us, we pray, to uh, to, to see your word. Help us to hear the words of Jesus as we consider this question of fitness for your kingdom and who is fit and will those who are saved be few. Help us, Lord, if we are, uh, for those of us who are prone to get all stressed out as we look deep within ourselves and we, we have lots of anxiety over this question, help us to look to others to welcome them in the way you do. And for those of us who are very concerned with others and figuring out whether or not they belong, help us, Lord, please, to be more challenged and concerned with wondering whether we are sharing your heart uh, with respect to the fitness of the kingdom. Help us to see and understand uh, your word here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, let let's let me deal with the question of fitness. Look at how Luke establishes the setting of Jesus's parables in verses one and two. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, look, take a look at this setting. Most of chapter 14 was spent with Jesus dining at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. And he gave specific instructions about who should be invited to such dinner parties. He told a few parables about the right kind of people and the wrong kind of people to invite. Now, here in chapter 15, Jesus is having his own dinner parties, and he's following his own instructions. He's inviting tax collectors and sinners to eat with him, and the Jewish religious leaders can't stand it. By grumbling here in verse 2, they show themselves to be the wrong kind of people, and they are all upset about the right kind of people enjoying their time with Jesus. Though technically they make an observation, what they make is simply a a statement. This man receives sinners and eats with them. They don't technically ask a question. Their observation, their complaint has an implied question, which is, why is he doing this? Or perhaps the question is, this isn't how it should be, should it? Uh, and, And perhaps, what about us? Why doesn't he spend more time with us? Why is he spending time with them. So this is the the question. It's a question of fitness. Who is fit to spend time with Jesus? Why are they fit to be there and we aren't? And in the theology of Luke so far, we can't separate this question of who's fit to spend time with Jesus. We can't separate that from a more cosmic question. Who is fit for the kingdom of God? Because that's precisely what Jesus said he came to bring. Now, why does this question of fitness matter? Why are the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling about it to begin with? We should see that the question of fitness is ultimately a question about joy, about the joy of God's kingdom, because Jesus is not simply talking to these people. No, in verse 2, their complaint is that he is receiving them and eating with them. And we see in verse 1 that the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear him. Now, back in chapter 13, verse 29, Jesus spoke about people coming from all four points of the compass, north, south, west, and east. And they all would come to recline at table in the kingdom of God, that is to eat and drink with God in the new age of his kingdom. And now Jesus himself, he embodies that joy of feasting in the new age of God's kingdom. And he embodies it by feasting with those whom the religious elites consider unfit for the kingdom. So the question of fitness, that is, who is fit for the kingdom of God, is also a question of joy. What causes God to have joy in his kingdom? What kind of person does God welcome to draw near? Who gets to share in that joy? Who gets to share the joy of table fellowship, of friendship, of feasting? And now that we've understood Luke's setup here, we're ready to see how Jesus answers the question. And he does this with three parables. 
if we don't pay close enough attention to the setup here in verses one and two, we will end up lifting these vivid, memorable stories from their context. And perhaps, as is all too common, we'll get stuck on one or another of the secondary points within the parables instead of the main point that Jesus is addressing, which is the question of fitness. Who is fit for the kingdom of God? Which is also the question of joy. What gives God joy? Who does God want to be with? So let's talk about Jesus's answer. The rest of the chapter covers Jesus's answer, and there are three stories that Jesus tells, three parables that give three different angles on the answer. First, with the first parable, we see the source of heavenly joy in verses three through seven. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So let's talk about this first parable a bit. The first part of Jesus's answer to this question of fitness, it refers to the source of heavenly joy. The source of heavenly joy. In verse 7, Jesus says that there is more joy in heaven over one who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. This is the punchline of the parable. Of course, we know from other scriptures that everyone must repent in order to enter the kingdom. So we could say that there is no such thing as a righteous person who needs no repentance in an ultimate objective sense. But, but Jesus is making a point here. In context, Jesus is clearly referring to those religious elites who are grumbling at him for welcoming people who are repenting, people who are changing their lifestyle. Jesus is referring to those who believe themselves to be already to be righteous. They are the ones whom Jesus should be inviting into his house in their mind. They don't need to change anything. It's those tax collectors and sinners from verse 1 who need to change. Now, take note, these categories of tax collectors and sinners, these these are not necessarily referring to the poor or disadvantaged. I often hear people uh, make that connection today. But these aren't necessarily the poor or the disadvantaged. These are the people who are deemed unfit by the elites for God's kingdom. Many of them, tax collectors, and many of these sinners were in fact very wealthy and well off in economic terms. But you see, the tax collectors were considered by the Jews to be traitors to Israel, working for the enemy, Rome, and stealing the, 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 the good people's money for themselves. And the sinners were those that didn't fit in with the cultural conception of the right religious activities and or ethical behaviors or ways of dressing or ways of acting, all these kinds of things. So remember, the parable is making this point. 
that the one person who repents, the one person who turns, who changes from their lifestyle, from, from living for themselves to living for Jesus, that one person causes greater joy than 99 who don't. In the parable itself, we have a shepherd with 100 sheep. In verse 3, Jesus refers to what man of you, thereby he's calling them, these grumblers, he's calling them the shepherds of Israel. And so what he's doing, he himself is therefore also a shepherd. And so with this parable, Jesus plants himself right in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, Uh, Kind of like Ezekiel, who in chapter 34 condemned the shepherds of Israel who did not go after the strays. He puts himself in line with Psalm 23, which says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And Jesus plants himself right in that tradition, condemning the religious elites and reflecting in himself the character of God. And the rescue of the sheep might appear to be a one-way transaction in the parable because it's the shepherd himself who goes out, who finds the sheep, who lays it on his shoulders, and who rejoices. But remember the punchline in verse 7. The source of heavenly joy is when a sinner repents. It's when someone changes. It's when someone turns away from living for themselves in order to follow Jesus. So the joy here, the heavenly joy, is not over religious people who go out after all of the straying people who want nothing to do with Jesus. It's not that act of seeking lost people that causes joy. The joy, the source of the joy, is over those who in the end repent who turn around and trust in Jesus to enter his kingdom. So who is fit for the kingdom of God? It is anyone who repents, that is, who changes to follow Jesus. How does this apply? Let me just ask, what is the source of your joy? And does your joy match up with heaven's joy? You see, some people find their joy in themselves or in maintaining the status quo. They want a close-knit community of people who love Jesus and that that community doesn't change a whole lot. Other people find their joy in the act of seeking lost sheep. They find their identity in being loyal and extreme in their devotion to wayward souls, even if those souls want nothing to do with Jesus. Friends, Jesus calls you to find your joy not in the status quo and not even in the act of seeking lost sheep, but he calls you to find your joy in the act of finding lost sheep. When a sinner repents to follow Jesus, we ought to sing with the heavenly host. This is the source of heavenly joy. When a sinner repents. Let's move on. The absoluteness of heavenly joy. In the second parable, Jesus now gives us a slightly different angle on the questions of fitness and joy. Verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. 
Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, notice how the first parable gave us a one in a hundred victory of a sinner repenting. Now he narrows it down to a one in 10 victory because this woman has 10 coins. A lot of this parable is similar. One of her items gets lost. She goes out of her way to find it. And upon finding it, she rejoices and asks her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her. But look at the new punchline here to this second story in verse 10. He says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, this time, the joy is not a comparative joy. It's not a relative joy where there's more joy over that one than over the others who didn't need to be found. So there's not a comparison. It's not a relative joy. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's a joy. It's not as though the God and the angels are joyful only because you happen to be not as stubborn and annoying as those other people out there who won't repent. No, in this joy, in this case, the joy is absolute. It does not require a quota. If even one sinner repents to follow Jesus, that's all it takes, then heavenly parties break loose. How does this apply? Friends, please don't grow weary when it seems like only a few are saved. Remember, this was the question that launched this section, these chapters of Luke in 1323. Will only a few be saved? And Jesus' answer has been, yes, at least in comparison to what you'd expect, only a few will be saved because the religious elites won't get in but the people that you never expected to get in will. So of course, of course, we would prefer, if given a choice, we would prefer to see more true conversions than fewer true conversions. We'd rather see more sinners repenting than fewer sinners repenting. But even if we see in our lifetimes only a few, every one of them matters. Now, I have been praying ever since last summer, I've been praying every day that we would see one person converted to Christ this academic year through our church. And of course, the, the quarantine, this homestay appeared to throw a wrench in the answer to those prayers, looking to see one sinner repent and come to Christ. But since we've been at home, I've focused my, my daily prayer even further. I've been asking God that this year, even one of the children or the young people in one of our church families would take the step of professing faith and turning to Christ. And I've not given up hope that it could happen. And when it does, make no mistake, that would not be a minor milestone for our church. If one of the children, one of the young people who grew up in our church, who's been a part of us, if they declare for Jesus, if they come out for Jesus and they profess faith and they dedicate their life to following him, that would be cause to throw a party with the angels in heaven. So for the children out there, for the young people, even the teenagers, 
who are with us today, if you have gotten so used to coming to church or to even now watching a computer screen on Zoom, if you've gotten so used to this that you think it's not all that important for you to be here, or that you feel like you've been lost in the crowd, or that you don't matter that much to God, please understand that you matter completely, absolutely, both to God and to the people in this church. You matter to the elders, you matter to your parents, you matter to the teachers, you matter to everyone in the church. We are praying for you, that you also would set your hope in Jesus through this stressful season in all of our lifetimes. So who is fit for God's kingdom? Anyone who stops trusting in themselves and trusts in Jesus instead. Every single person who does this is absolutely a cause of rejoicing, both in heaven and on earth. Let's move on to the third parable. Jesus' third parable is much more complex with much more that could be said about it. But please keep in mind the main idea. Who is fit for the kingdom of God? And what gives God his joy? With those questions in mind, let me read it. Starting verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, 
These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The end. The end. It's a strange ending. It, it ends with a cliffhanger. What, what's he going to do? This this story about two sons clearly divides into two parts. The, the first part is about the younger son, and the second part is about the older son. In fact, the very first sentence is, there was a man who had two sons. So this is not the parable of the prodigal son. That's not the right label for it. This is the parable about the two sons, the parable of two sons. In both parts, we see foregrounded the character of the father. His character comes across all over the place. So first, with the younger son, let's talk about this first part of the parable. We get a a beautiful, drawn-out picture of what it looks like for a lost sheep to be found, for a lost coin to be found, for a sinner to repent. What does it look like for a sinner to repent? Is this young man a sinner? Absolutely. Absolutely. In verse 12, he asks for his share of the property from his father. And in asking for that, he is telling his father that he wishes that his father were dead. I just want my inheritance. Please die, would you? In verse 13, by traveling far away, he is turning his back on every social expectation of being with the family and caring for his parents. At the end of verse 13, he squanders his property. And in squandering that, he's showing himself to have no respect for his ancestral inheritance. In verse 14, strikingly, the turning point in his life comes by means of a famine. Did you notice that in verse 14? That a severe famine arose in that country. In my experience, most Westerners who read this parable focus on the personal failure of the young man as I've described it in verses 12 and 13. But I've read that most Easterners who read this parable focus on the famine of verse 14. They tend to see the famine as a visible sign of the young man's outcast status. That is, you know, see, his sin was not so much moral failure as it was the shame and disrespect he brought on the family. The famine which you won't find in most children's Bibles when where this story is being summarized, is being told. The famine is proof that he had this state of squalor coming to him, not because of his ethical choices of wasting the property, though that's there. The older brother later will say he wasted it with prostitutes. Up here, it doesn't say he had prostitutes. But it, it, it's, he had this coming to him, not so much because of his wasting of the property, but because of his shameful disrespect of his father and his family. This young man was a disgrace. In verses 15 and 16, to an ancient Jew, this young man could not sink any lower. 
than not only caring for such holy animals as pigs, but wishing to eat their food. This is the, the, the absolute bottom of disgrace. We Americans read this story and perhaps we're surprised by the acceptance of this wayward, unethical, rebellious son in the end. But the ancient Jews would have had at least two surprises. The first one being that the father would even have put up with all of this disrespect to begin with. The son asked for his share of the inheritance and the father says, okay, here it is. And that's a great surprise. We know this from ancient comments on this story. Uh, for example, Peter uh, Chrysologus from the 5th century says, the son is as impatient as the father was kind. He is weary of his father's own life. He was not content to possess his father's wealth in company with his father. And he deserved to lose the privileges of a son. So so they had two surprises, the why the father put up with this and then the son's unethical act activity, of course. But of course, this young sinner comes to himself in verse 17. When he came to himself, you see, he decided to change. He decided to turn things around. He decided to repent. And the only way he could turn things around was to to go back to his father, even if in his mind that meant being only a slave and not a son, that would be worth it to him. But this shockingly undignified father runs out to meet the son, which just wouldn't have happened in in, in ancient culture. The father running like this, it's apparently undignified. He, He goes on to clothe him, and he, he wants to put a ring on his finger. It's the equivalent of giving him a credit card, saying, here, l- let me give you my credit card to help you out. And then he throws a huge party. Remember, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. So we see the source of the father's joy in the one who repents, and we see the absoluteness of it, if even one comes. And here he is. And this son, in the father's perspective, is nothing short of, verse 24, the dead returning to life. This is the dry bones of Ezekiel 37 regaining flesh. This is the nation of Israel being reborn from exile to inherit the land once again. All these Old Testament pictures are being pulled together in this story. So what's the point? Who is fit for the kingdom of God? Anyone. Anyone, no matter how disgraceful or wrongheaded they have been. Anyone who returns to embrace Jesus as master. That's the key, is you return to embrace him at whatever cost, even if it means you can only come back as a slave. So we see in living color this brilliant, amazing masterpiece of a story. We see the joy of heaven over a sinner who repents. But Jesus is not done. He has something else to say here about the question of fitness. He has something else to say about the question of joy. And that's part two of the parable. When the older brother in the story hears the party, this is starting in verse 25, he refuses to enter into the house. He will not even go in to share in the joy of heaven. And he blames 
his brother for it. In fact, in verse 30, he can't even bring himself to call himself my brother. He calls him this son of yours who devoured your property with prostitutes. So he blames the son of his father, but he also blames his father for this situation. He says, you, at the end of verse 30, you killed the fattened calf for him. You need to remember in the parable that everything the father now owns belongs to the older brother. He's already split stuff in half and he gave the younger brother his half of the inheritance. So all that's left is the older brother's inheritance. So this big party for the younger brother is costing the older brother. And he is not willing to pay that cost from joy over a sinner who repents. And the parable simply ends on a cliffhanger with the father inviting the son into the party. He confesses a second time now to the older son, that that the younger brother was dead and he's now been raised. The lost has been found. This connects it back with the first two parables that Jesus told. But the unspoken question lingers in the air. The father says in verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate. This is a question of fitness. Will you celebrate with me? Will you come into the house? Will you enter the kingdom? Will you rejoice in the repentance of a sinner? And we don't know what happens. Jesus leaves it open. Because in fact, this story is playing out before his very eyes. And he is letting the Pharisees and the scribes finish the story for him. What's going to happen? In the next passage, in chapter 16, which Tom is scheduled to preach next week, that passage picks up on some application for Jesus's own disciples. Are you willing to rejoice in the rescue of sinners, even if it costs you personally, like it costs this older brother in the parable? Are you willing to, to, to pay the cost of sinners being rescued, of eternal friends being made? But for today, please understand this by way of application. Your grumbling or even your indifference to the rescue of sinners is out of tune with the joy of heaven. Friends, if you ever find yourself wishing that this church would stop changing, or that a certain kind of person would stop attending, whether it's people of a certain color or people with a certain accent or people with certain sketchy backgrounds or people whom you have perceived to be a drain on society for any reason and you fear that they will be a drain on this church, that they will cost us, then you are out of tune with your Father in heaven. Your joy is not the joy of the angels. And your heart is not knit together with Jesus's heart. You might still be standing outside the house of God's kingdom, watching the party and resenting how much it is costing you. And friends, Jesus invites every one of us, even those who are grumbling, he invites us in 
to unite with him in the joy of his kingdom. But let me back up one last time to the part about, that's all about the older son. Let me back up one last time to the part about the younger son. If you're with us today and and you're listening to this and you have not been sure whether you are a Christian or not, or whether you want to be a Christian or not, if you've been unsure whether Jesus is or ought to be your really your only hope, your master, then please come home to Jesus. Just come home. If you turn from what you're doing and you just come home to him, then you are fit for the kingdom of God. And those of you who, like me, need to come home to Jesus every day, it's not something you do once and you're done. You come home to Jesus every day. If you just come home to Jesus and share in his joy, you are fit for the kingdom of God. And you will be the cause of heavenly joy. And we, as a church, would be delighted to know about it, especially if you are coming home to Jesus for the first time. We would love to know about it so that we can celebrate with you. We want to share heaven's joy. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us and helping us with this question of fitness, of who is fit for your kingdom. Help us to be those whose joy is in tune with the joy of heaven. Father, please, we we beg of you, we ask, as Jesus taught us to pray, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for pulling back the curtain here today and showing us what happens in heaven, what your will is in heaven. We ask that it would be done on earth and that we would celebrate with God the Father and the angels of God when even one sinner repents and comes home to Jesus. Help us to trust you, Jesus, and may we come home to you every day as we turn aside from trusting in ourselves to trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.